0: Welcome to another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. Today, I have John Lemus, who many of you might know, he is a very outspoken and strong advocate for self-advocates in the Spokane region. John, you have been on a podcast with me before, and in that podcast, I had you introduce yourself. But for those that may not have listened to that podcast, although I will tell you it was very popular, all of our podcasts with self-advocates are very popular. Would you mind just giving me a little introduction of yourself and some of the work that you've done? Because you have a very impressive resume. Sure. John Lemus.
1: Um, I've lived here in Spokane for most of my life. Um, I was adopted by a military family and we moved to America in 92. And Spokane has been home ever since. I have worked in the developmental disabilities arena for about 17 years, started in 2005. Got my start as an AmeriCorps member at the Ark of Spokane. Had about seven years unemployment, went to work for SkillSkin as their community relations facilitator, and now I'm working for At Work as their advocacy coordinator, which is very much my dream job. <clears throat> so
0: very lucky to be able to get to do the work I love. And actually, before you jump ahead to some of the other work, can you explain what, you? as you mentioned, that is your dream job. Can you explain a little bit about what that position is just for our listeners, case sure. they are um, unfamiliar with that? Very good. So, my advocacy coordinator
1: role at work in, involves coordinating our legislative efforts. So, right now we are in November, December, and those are my two busiest months as we prepare for the legislative session. The legislative session this year coming is a biennial session, which means, or it's a short session, sorry. So they are only making little tweaks to the budget, and we'll be very lucky if we can get some bills passed. And it is a 60-day session, so it is the work is hard and fast. It goes very quickly, meeting with legislators, pushing our bills forward, keeping track of what's going on and activating constituents to respond as well. So that's a lot of fun. We also get to, our boss is very cool about letting us kind of blaze our own trail. So we get to do trainings for our staff around issues that are important to self-advocates and serving people with disabilities. And so we just presented a new workshop around behavior as communication, and we are working on another one around ableism. So it's a very fun job. We get to do a lot of different things, especially during the interim outside of session.
0: Very cool. I have to tell you, if I had a nickel for every time I say behavior is communication, I probably could pay at least for one of my children to go to college because I think that that that's really so, so accurate. So that's very encouraging. And then who benefits from these presentations that you do? So
1: our staff at At Work are people that we present to. Sometimes other agencies who know that we're doing this work will call us And their counties will contract with us for consulting for those trains.
0: Very cool. And how many
1: staff members do you have at At Work? Uh, We have about 100. Very cool. Um,
0: And is that statewide then?
1: Yes. We are spread out between King County, Snohomish County, and Spokane.
0: Ooh, very cool. Okay. Well, we're glad that you are in that role, definitely in representing Spokane because it's, and we'll talk a little bit more about legislation here, but um, I'm going to go ahead and let you finish your resume. Was there anything else you want to add in terms of, you know, some of the work that you've done? There's one particular thing that I'm very proud to be able to say that it has passed and and you've been working on from the get-go, and that was the sub-minimum wage um, legislation. You want to talk a little bit about what that was?
1: Sure. So, At Work has been working with our partners to end subminimum wage for quite some time now. And so we got a bill passed last session in the state legislature to ban subminimum wage in the state of Washington. And that's for Um, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, correct? yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so it's still legal at the federal level. So that's our next step. Congresswoman McMorris Rogers is doing some great work around sponsoring several bills that would end subminimum wage. So very proud of her for championing that
0: bill. Yeah, very cool. So um, let's start back because we're just talking about a lot about John today. You're like the center of this conversation. When I've had you on the past, we've talked about ABA and the benefits to individuals on the autism spectrum, but today it's just all about you, John. So, and we can go anywhere if there's you know, different road that you want to take, but starting back to, you you were adopted by a military family and how old were you when you came to the United States? I was sick. You were sick. So and- I
1: don't, I don't remember much about England at all.
0: Oh, okay. Now, so you were actually born in England? Yes. And so did you uh, take part in any um, therapy interventions while you were there? Like at how old were you when um, your parents, it like there was evidence that you may need some support. or so there was an intellectual developmental disability that um, they needed to start looking at for intervention. So
1: I was, they adopted me at age three, I believe. And for as long as I remember, we bounced around to different Air Force bases for appointments. They had me going to OT, PT, nursery, a special nursery for people with disabilities. So they they had me in those services from the get-go. I got into elementary school um, here in the U.S. I continued with OT and PT and speech therapy. But other than that, I haven't really had a lot of specialized therapy and services. You've heard me say this before, but I really wish that ABA would have been as hot as it was back then, or as hot as it was you know what I mean, but I would,
0: it yeah, would have I been
1: as popular as it is now.
0: Yeah. And and it's oh and ABA, keep in mind, has been around, you know, for our listeners, it's been around for a very, very long time. The problem is, is that here, depending on where you lived, you may not have had providers readily available right. to be able to access ABA. And so um, especially, John, do you mind sharing roughly? You don't have to give me your exact age. Um, I am going to be 37 in February. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You're not even 40. You're a young whippersnapper. So, and, <laughs> and so that's the problem is, is that when we, and I'm guessing John, a lot of your delays that they may have noted when you were small were, pro- were they related because they, you were adopted and there was a lot of transitions and different elements like that. Um I, my parents tell me that I had a really hard time developing
1: as a young child. I didn't talk much. I just kind of stayed to myself. So those early stages of development, I was really behind. When we moved here to America, I actually had to repeat the second grade. That was the first grade that I got to enter when we came in. So I was very behind, spent a lot of time in the resource room, and it took a long time for my development to get where it needed to be academically. Sure.
0: So then in Spokane, you went through um, high school and I'm going to I think I remember that you were actually a graduate of North Central. Is that right? Yes. Class of 2004. Two thousand four. Oh my goodness! I was having babies in two thousand four. You're so young, John. Oh my <laughs> goodness! Looking back at your high school years, because you you and I are Facebook friends, and so and you you have said before we even started and, and hit the record button that you're pretty much an open book. And and so, how would you describe your high school years at North Central? So I went to two different high
1: schools. I actually had to go to my freshman and sophomore year at Cheney. Oh, I didn't know. That. Was pretty terrible. And then, like most families who have, my parents ended up separating or divorcing um, in between my sophomore and junior year of high school. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, So my dad and I moved into town and I went, we lived a couple blocks away from North Central, so it all worked out. And had we not moved into Spokane Public Schools, I do not think that I would have had the Opportunities and experiences that I have today. Cheney, their special ed
0: department, I always say is one of the worst in our area. And specifically um, in that time frame, like what made it worse? Like what could, in, in keeping in mind that you would have been there what 2000 2001 is that right yeah. so what made it what would have been more beneficial for you as you know a person with IDD at in the Chini school district back in that era of like you know 2000 2001 i think they could have challenged me a little bit more i mean i i remember
1: going and sitting in a di class all day oh really they had you in a di class not yeah. gen ed with just some resource support yeah i mean i I had to fight for that. And my eventually told my parents, like, I'm not going to sit in this class all day. Mm-hmm. And so I did have some pullouts um, for some different topics, and they did not give me one-on-one support for those classes. So I didn't do very well. But really, they just didn't challenge me at all. They just expected me to, you know, sit and go through very basic curriculum. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until my junior and senior years, because I held back, I turned 18 okay. in my senior year of high school. And so I got a little bit more autonomy. Mm-hmm. I also went to special ed in the law and in Yakima that year. And I came back and I said, here's what we're going to do. And if you don't like it, I have someone at the Center for
0: Justice that we can call. So you've always been a very powerful uh, advocate, yeah. self-advocate, even when you were advocating for your own IEP needs. That's fantastic. And now, how did you, you have a very good perspective of yourself and you've been, you know, and we'll get to this here in a little bit, just about personal development. But Do you feel like looking back in your high school years, or even if maybe it was in middle school, that you had this moment of clarity where you realized that, hey, I can advocate for myself. I know what I want and I know what I don't want because I know my son, you know, my son, Caleb is an eighth grader at Sacagawea, which is part of the Spokane Public Schools district, and I'm still really pushing him to express his needs and let teachers know when something's not working, and and it's slow going. So I'm yeah. curious whether or not there was a, a moment in time or someone that came into your life, or I mean, it could have even been a special ed teacher that really inspired you to take control of your your IEP so that you could self direct self-direct what you wanted in school.
1: Right. So I feel like I got more of that autonomy when I turned 18. Okay. Uh, that was my senior year. i loved my senior year, by the way. I had some really great friends. I was homecoming king. I um, I really took charge. And the first exam I can give was a psychology class that I wanted to take because I really wanted to learn more about disability and kind of the inner working and all of that. And so I fought tooth and nail to get, into the psychology class. And the DI teacher actually supported me doing that. And she um, helped me get into that. She also helped me get connected with the cross-country team, which I was not good at at
0: all. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been a good runner, John. (laughs) My My dad
1: always used to joke that the cheerleaders ran faster than me. (laughs)
0: Oh, yeah, I always tease John that if anyone sees me running, start running faster than me, because that means that I'm in mortal danger and the key is to outrun me so you survive. So that's my joke. I think when
1: I really felt like I had some good support was when I went into the images program. Roxanne Coast was my teacher there and she really supported the things that I wanted to do as a part of my IEP. In fact, my last year there, I... I went to her before school started and I said, here's how the year is going to work. I want to volunteer at the Arc of Spokane full time. I'm only going to come in on Fridays just to, you know, have some classroom time connect. They made that happen. And it was a really great experience. I got to work with Lance and his team. And then immediately after I graduated Images, I went into the
0: AmeriCorps program there. Fantastic. Would you mind describing and explaining for those that are not familiar with IMAGES what that program looks like? IMAGES is basically one
1: of Spokane Public School's secondary transition programs. And so as many of you know, individuals with disabilities can stay in school until they're 21. And so IMAGES is kind of a We had to be recommended by our MDT teams at the high school to get in. And they taught us how to ride the bus. They taught us how to manage money, cook, clean, all of that good stuff. They connected us with all the services we needed, whether it be DVR, DDA. And we had that follow along for the two to three years that we were there. Because I was 18 when I entered, I was what's called a super senior. So I was in the
0: program, I think, for three years before I graduated. Gotcha. And why ARC of Spokane in particularly that you were really passionate about? You had mentioned, I know that you're a big fan of Lance Morehouse. Was that pri- primarily the driving force or? So I was
1: really involved in, before I arrived at the ARC, my family has really been social and social justice involved for a very long time. My dad was the, the human rights officer for the city of Spokane until that position was cut under powers. Anyway, and so my first strive position is what the district called it then. Now they call it CTE, was actually working in the district's equity office. Uh And so my dad served on the board of the Arc of Spokane throughout my childhood. And so Lance Morehouse invited me to be a part of their advocacy committee. When I was in Images, they picked my friend and I, Heather Comer, to go to Washington, D.C. for the Arc's National Policy Seminar. And after that, I was hooked and I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And so I came back and talked with Lance, arranged to exit the equity office in my my, um, second year at Images and transitioned into the ARC. Oh, nice. And how long did you volunteer for the ARC then? I volunteered for the ARC for a year before going into AmeriCorps. And then after that, I volunteered for them for another seven years until arriving at SkillSkin.
0: Oh, fantastic. If you don't mind, I you have been on another podcast and you have been, you know, very vocal about topics around, you know, parent shaming and that parents, you know, you're a real strong advocate for parents and understanding that parents really are trying to do the best they can to support their children with disabilities. When we talk about your parents, you have posted on social media that it's it's hard because you had very strict parents, and on some elements that was really probably in your year, early years. If we would have done this interview when you were maybe in junior high or high school, you would have a different perspective because it did feel very strict, and they had very high expectations. And you know, you may I don't. It sounds like from some of your posts that at the time you may not have appreciated it, but that has changed. Is that would you say that that's true? I I would say that that has changed. You know, <laughs> I I remember going into Lance's
1: office once and. I think it was my first year there. And he told me that my dad had met with him before I graduated high school. And he said, the only future that I see for my son is jail. I was a pretty horrible kid. I was, I was a pretty horrible kid. Now, what um, makes you feel like you were a horrible kid? Cause I find that so hard to believe. You no, know, and, and that's the thing though, is that my parents always said that I was good around other people. But when I was at home, oh. um, <laughs> I was so bad. That my parents had to buy um, one of those stand up campers that goes in the back of a truck and then you put it, they bought one of those and we had a couple of acres out by the Pullman Highway. And that is where I lived because I would just wreak havoc on my parents and my sisters every day. Is that just from like emotional dysregulation or? I, I think it was a combination between how I was treated at home and how I was treated at school. Like I said, my parents were very strict. Um, I came from a military family. My father did not have a lot of patience for some of the behaviors that were related to my disability. That led to a lot of strife between my parents and I growing up. I now see why they were so hard on me because they wanted me to have a good work ethic and to be successful and to to function at my highest and best. I mean, it, met, it left me with a lot of emotional baggage, but I totally understand why they raised me the way they did. They, the, the only drawback to that, and this has been very difficult for me, is that because of the way that I was raised and the expectations that they had for me. Mm -hmm. I tend to not be very, and I'm working on this, I tend to not be very patient with other people with disabilities who I feel are not, who have a lot of the drama and behaviors and especially the social behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, I just don't have a lot of patience for that. Yeah. And that gotten me in a lot of trouble with some self-advocates. Like, you think you're better than that? No, I don't. I just, I struggle with you because, you know, I feel like you could be doing better.
0: Yeah. You think that they actually have more potential than maybe they see in themselves. And so, yeah, I, I, I can see that in some of the. Just the some of the dialogues that you've had, and we've talked before just about some of the narrow-minded perspectives that people have. You know, again, we've talked about some self-advocates really are very harsh when it comes to um, therapy interventions for young people with autism and other disabilities and how they're very vocal about the fact that even in some cases they label it abusive. And so it's, yeah, you're, there's definitely a couple different, there's many different camps of individuals on the autism spectrum and definitely see you as being a person. You definitely hold your own, John, though, I will say. I I try.
1: Um, I remember a couple of weeks ago, we just had like a really emotional moment on our um, and I didn't mention this at the beginning, but I also work for the University of Washington on their Autism Echo project. And I finally just broke down and I was like, I am getting hit left and right from self-advocates. And I'm not sure if I want to keep doing this. But the work is important. And we're making some really good progress with the providers that we're teaching when they bring their cases to us. Yeah, um, It's just so difficult because there's some self-advocates out there, not all. Yep. And that's not always in the worst. Yeah. There are just some self-advocates out there that cannot see past their own points of view. Yeah. And it's frustrating.
0: It is because then it creates some of that drama and those social challenges that you're describing. And yeah, yeah, so I definitely sympathize. If you were to look back at your relationship with your parents in particularly, do you feel like looking back? You know, I think that now you appreciate the fact that they were strict and had high expectations, but do you still feel like they're, you know, because you also mentioned that you have some baggage as a result of that is where's that happy medium? Like if you could go back and redo time, where do you feel like a happy medium can be for those parents that are listening between, you know, perhaps they have some of the same, you know, parenting strategies and mindset. Um, Where's that happy medium? I think that...
1: One of the first things I suggest to parents is going through love and logic, because I think that that helps with some of the the parenting strategies. I know that anger management was really helpful for my dad, which helped him better interact with me when I had
0: some of those more difficult behaviors. Do you feel like um, anger management and emotional regulation go hand in hand? I do. Yeah. I think that, I think that,
1: it can be hard for us as people with disabilities to regulate some of that anger, but we have to. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. and I think we have to come up
1: with some coping strategies. I mean, absolutely.
0: I- and when we talk about like your dad in particular, and that he took some anger management classes, really, what those are geared towards is helping even adults deal yeah. with emotional regulation too. Well, so I've taken those
1: classes myself. I went through the class at the Fulcrum Institute.
0: Oh, okay. And how was that? Was that beneficial?
1: It was. I think that it gave me some really good coping strategies and um, kind of taught me to think before I speak. I have a better relationship with both of my parents now. You know, my dad and I still have our go arounds. Um, but for the most part, I think that we have a better relationship than I did
0: with, with them when I was younger. And I'm grateful for that. Now, is this a product of you think them having more understanding of it or that you both have, you everyone involved, parents and as well as you have matured to a point where you can see things from each other's perspectives? I think that it's a product of
1: that, but it's also a product of them being able to see that I was able to be independent. When I turned eighteen, I went through a few
0: adult family homes. Okay. See, actually, this is great because I was going to ask you what life yeah. looked like after high school in terms of your like living independently. Because you are a very independent, self advocate. You have an apartment downtown. You live on your wow. own. Um, so I was going to ask. I'm glad that you you transitioned there. Um, so you yeah. lived in several group family homes. Like, what did that look like for you? They were horrible. I hated it. I was and what still, made horrible.
1: Yeah, I was um I was still in high school when I moved into my first adult family home. And it, the owner was very young, kind of an absent owner. And so I ended up getting kicked out of there. And then I went to another that was a couple blocks away. And I ended up getting kicked out of there. And is this because of just rigidity?
0: It just wasn't an age-appropriate placement. Oh, okay. So there was not other people that were your age?
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the third one, the guy who ran the place was older than the oldest resident there. And so that didn't work out. And so I had a really good job coach at the time. Her name was Debbie Barrell. I was working with Goodwill, and she told me about this program for Volunteers of America called Flaherty House. And that program has since closed due to loss of federal funding, but she got me into that program. They had a home in the district one area of town. And so when I got in there, it was a program for homeless young men who were 18 to 21. And they taught me everything I needed to know to live independently. And I was ready for my first apartment. There was actually a small complex right next door to the house. They got me a housing voucher. They got me in there. And any time that I needed help, um, they were right next door. Okay. And uh, how old were you when you then transitioned there? I think I was in my 20s. Okay. Um, that was a really great opportunity. Um, and then when I moved, I moved to an apartment complex over by um, a Vista. And then from there, I lived to a South Hill, and now I live
0: downtown. Fantastic. Primarily, when you were living in the group family homes, you had then other residents that were there. But once you then transitioned from to your first apartment, then you've been living independently without roommates. For I mean, okay, yeah. yeah. Now, do you um, like living independently without a roommate, or is that somewhat lonely? I
1: hate being on my own. I, I really hate it. I, I really dislike living like being
0: on my own.
1: Well, you love being
0: independent, but you don't really like that loneliness of living by yourself. You have written actually some curriculum for individuals with disabilities. So you want to talk a little bit about that? You have 1.0 that has um, been out. And how long long ago did you actually develop this curriculum for people with disabilities?
1: So I think I Like You was developed in 2005. And it was an instant hit. Um, I got called to all the local schools, different organizations across the state, um, and it was an instant hit. It just really talked about how to have safe relationships and the
0: the, the boundaries and um, all of that. One of the reasons why you were inspired to write the curriculum for I yeah, Think I Like You is because you had a lot of friends that had intellectual developmental disabilities that you saw were in unhealthy relationships. Is that true?
1: Yes. I have never shared this publicly. Um, Well, actually I have, but not on an interview type setting, but I had a lot of friends who were getting into really bad relationships. And while I was in high school, I was sexually assaulted
0: twice. Oh, John, I'm so sorry. Um, you know, the statistic of how many individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities that have experienced a s- sexual abuse is astronomical. Isn't it over 80%? It is. And it's uh, multiple times. Yeah. It's um, unacceptable.
1: And so that curriculum and training was really what inspired me, number one, to help my friends get... Um, into better relationships and number two to kind of take my power back yeah. like and teach people like this is how to protect yourself so it was much as a education process for me was for others
0: yeah oh my goodness and now you're working on the 2.0 version is that correct I am the time that I created this
1: um there have been a lot of changes in the dating world, so we've got things like Tinder. And when I went back and looked through it, I mean, there were still mentions of things like Yahoo personals, which was like, <laughs>
0: "Oh boy, that's so old." <laughs> and, there, uh, did you have MySpace in there too? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. And so
1: I went back and I looked at that and I was like, I really want to like revive this, but we got to do some, uh, updating to it. And one of the biggest things I want to focus on is around the internet and online dating
0: Yeah,
1: because I've seen so many people with IDD get burned. Um, whether it's, um, sexting whether it's talking to the wrong people online whether it's meeting up with people that um they met online and um just having really bad things happen there so we need to do a better job of educating our young people and some of our older people on the dangers of online dating
0: yeah now have you participated in online dating with some success <laughs>
1: not well have, do you
0: try <laughs> online dating like
1: i i have i've been on um i created profiles on um i'm ashamed to say that i was on tinder for a bit um there's no shame in that paid for that for a whole year and everybody was like no don't do that again
0: and you didn't um, like it
1: and that I, it wasn't a good space for you to be in no i didn't get any matches um And then I met um, through a coworker, I heard about Hinge and Hinge seems to be the more, I think it's more sophisticated. Like the people
0: that you meet, there are people who are actually looking for a relationship. And so what's the platform of Hinge? Is it same, similar to like plenty of fish or um, match.com? Okay. And you create, but it's just people that are more mature that are truly Mm -hmm. looking for relationships. Right.
1: I want to pull something up, a new dating app called HIKI, H-I-K-I, and it's a dating app for people on the spectrum.
0: I've not vetted this app, so it's something that... Um, yeah, I was going to just say that is I really feel like that there has to be some platform that's got to be just right around the corner. Do you feel like when we're talking about dating, there's, you know, dating because, you know, you're, you don't enjoy living alone because you like your independence, but you are lonely. So is there an element of dating that's appealing because you want that companionship or if, um, or is there really like, do you feel like there is, you know, like a, a lack and and missing that intimacy and attachment that you have from a partner that you can connect with on a level. That's just more, it's different than just connecting to find someone that you can hang out with and go do things with. I'm very lucky to have a good friend, sh- friend circle. You do. Um, that's the thing you have a fantastic girl. Like I say girl, but mostly we you tease because you have a lot of women in your life that are not you know, partners per se, but that are just really good, solid friends for you. Um, that really give you a lot of companionship, but there's still, I definitely sense that there's definitely something missing for you. Like you really are. I,
1: I would really like to be able to settle down with someone, you know, I see how happy my friends are with the, with their lives and they have people to support them and their goals and dreams. And, and, um, I don't know. And 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 people oftentimes say that, and I hate it because it kind of delves into that theory of mind bullshit. Um, but they often say that like people on the spectrum don't have a real understanding of what relationships look like. I don't agree with that
0: no? at all. Yeah. I would say I agree with you that I don't agree with that at all.
1: I think that You know, growing up, I've always seen my family. It sucks being the only one at a family event without, you know, a partner or a wife. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Really want someone to do life with.
0: But you have dated throughout your adult life, correct? I have.
1: And um, I had a very, very special friend and we were on and off for a very long time. When she died, I kind of lost interest in dating for a while. She's my best friend. And the only thing I'll say about that is epilepsy sucks. You know, it's a it's a silent killer. Um, I miss her very much.
0: Yeah, I know you do. I You share posts periodically about her and it makes me very sad for you, John, because I can tell that that's going to always be a hole that you're never going to find someone that can fully fill. Now, you did meet someone and you were engaged for a while, but she didn't live in Spokane and that actually created some challenges. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure.
1: So I met Erin and um, I met her through a Zoom group. Um, for individuals with disabilities, which I'm no longer involved in. And we hit it off right away. And we jumped into things way too quickly. Within about six months, I found myself in Indiana proposing to her. She has a daughter um, who is 22 and has significant autism. And the distance was just too much. Mm -hmm. um I actually just got back from Indiana for from seeing them um for Aaron's birthday um we're still really good friends
0: but one of the things that you guys had to navigate was you wanted to be together and you wanted to get married and that was the plan but the problem was is that one of you was going to have to uplift your life and make a major radical change. And you are very well connected and very well rooted in Spokane. You're a huge, you know, powerhouse when it comes to legislative issues um, as they relate to uh, issues of disability. And so you guys both talked, but then her moving to Spokane was very limiting because, um, you know, she's uprooting, not just herself, but her daughter that has, you know, significant autism. If you had moved to Indiana, you were kind of doing some research, right. About, you know, opportunities for you there in Indiana and felt like that was a real kind of aha moment for you, where there was really no good solution, of anything in between that was going to make that relationship be able to yeah. work well. I mean, is that fair to say?
1: Yes. I love my job.
0: And your and job is
1: actually a huge
0: part of your identity too. It is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that's not to say that I didn't love Erin. Yeah. Um, it's
0: just that Well, I think the fact that you're still going and spending her birthday yeah, with her yeah, when she yeah. I think didn't she have um you actually spent spring break or part of the summer over there helping to take care of her for a little bit because she I was, did. Yes. Um, Clearly you, you have, you love her and you care for her because nobody is going to end a engagement and then still, you know, travel to see each other the way that you guys do. So, but there's just the logistics of that and how much each of you would have to give up was a lot.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was really difficult for me and I, I loved her daughter. Like she was my own. Um, And we really. I was really able to connect with her kiddo because we both were on the spectrum. Um, I was able to help out with some of her behaviors and get her on track on a few things. You know, I think that's my biggest regret is I was really looking forward to being a dad. Yeah. Um, And to helping her daughter Autumn become more independent and successful.
0: Well, and I think that you have something that even this is something that as a parent I'm striving to is that without without intent I automatically do somewhat limit what Caleb's full potential might look like because again I I still have him in bubble wrap because I'm afraid and I'm worried um, you know I just everything that you talk about in terms of unhealthy relationships and him being you know preyed upon by people that don't have good intentions. It's hard to not wrap him in bubble bubble wrap and try and protect him from things. But in doing so, John, I do recognize I am limiting some of his potential. And and that's one of those things where I think you bring to the table for Autumn, and particularly is is that you, as a self-advocate yourself, and having broken away from some of these constraints not just from, you know, schools, but even just in in work world and legislation, things that you've done. I think that you are a really um, wonderful person and that if there's anyone that can really challenge what, you know, she is capable of doing and that level of independence, I think it's you. So, yeah, I think that's a really good. You know, it's always nice getting self-advocates perspective because, you know, we, sometimes we just do too good of a job trying to protect the, the people, our children that we love.
1: Well, and what I'll say to parents, um, because I never skip an opportunity to say this, is that you should never, ever let self-advocates or even other parents, because there are some other parents out there who can be pretty aggressive. Oh my god! yes. um, But you should never let other parents or aggressive self-advocates like question you or, or make you feel guilty about the choices that you're making for your child because you know your child best and you have met them since day one with all the doctor's appointments, the therapies, you know, who, who are other parents or self-advocates who don't have children of their own to tell you how to parent? or to question your choices. you know. Most families who have kids on the autism spectrum are just trying to survive day by day as they
0: can. Well, we're going to wrap up, but before we do, do you have any final thoughts that you want our listeners to just be aware of? Um, things that maybe you wish more parents would know? I think that one of the things that
1: I wish more parents would know is that especially around the mental health side, is that having autism is very difficult. And I know a lot of youth with autism who even have to mask just yet for school or you know, their day-to-day. Um, so I would ask parents to really watch out for that because that's kind of the new trend in autism burnout is people having to mask so that they
0: can get through the day. Um, So can I ask more questions related to that? Because I think that's a really good point. And one thing that I've noticed is that it is challenging, especially, you know, my son's in middle school and let's be honest, middle school is not awesome for anyone. Um, let alone if you have a disability, but, um, because know bodies are changing, there's that whole new social dynamic of friendships and all the things. So I definitely appreciate exactly what you're talking about that, that, need to mask. So when Caleb comes home, or even if we go on a vacation, um, I have in my mind, you know, like, oh, let's sit on the TV and, or sit in front of the TV and let's have like family movie night or this, or, Hey, let's run and go and do X, Y, and Z. And I do know that my son would enjoy that, but there are times where he is just like, no, I just want to stay home by myself. And he is really Then just he wants everybody to leave the house or he'll stay in his room for a long period of time because that's his decompressed time especially yeah. when we went on vacation, when we were on vacation, he would be a joiner and come and do some of the sightseeing and things that I had planned. But there were then times where I had, I had built gaps into our schedule for some days. And, um, since we were all in a fifth wheel camper, you know, it's not like you have a lot of privacy, but one of the things that he had requested is on the day that we went to Lake Powell in Arizona, he wanted to stay alone with just the dog, um, and him in the camper so that he could just be on his device and not have to fight over the internet and just not have to listen to people. And it kind of, as I was driving away, like my mom heart hurt a little bit because it's like, but he's missing quality family time, but I recognize that for him, this is just his opportunity, his time to just decompress and not have to be around people. Mm. And um, so we've been a lot better about listening to him when he's, you know, cause it's really hard when you've got a large family, like we do, cause we're a blended family he doesn't get a lot of opportunity to be completely away and unwind and really a lot of what he likes to do. He likes to play Legos and he wants to be uninterrupted playing Legos, or he likes his, he has a virtual reality thing for his PlayStation that he enjoys doing. Um, and so a lot of it is just letting him get, um, super engrossed in some of his, you know, obsessive interests and he doesn't have to apologize and he can be himself and he can just, you know, retreat internally. And it's been, and it's really good for his mental health. But, um, when we talk about masking for you as an adult, I mean, you have a lot of committees and, um, responsibilities, like when you, what does it look like when you're masking for the public? And then what do you do when you get home and you have the opportunity to take the mask off? What does that look like in your world?
1: Oh, I'd hate to
0: share my secrets, but (laughs) you don't have to. to, But, you know, I don't think that parents even understand, well, what does masking even look like? For me, honestly,
1: um, when I'm in meetings, I have a really hard time taking everything in. Most people don't know, but both of my eardrums are patched. So I have to work extra hard to hear what's being said. And then most of the meetings I go to, people always say I have an awkward look on my face because I can't handle fluorescent lighting. And so, you know, I used to work for SkillSkin and um, I love Brian Beeler and the folks over there. And I had my own office. And the first thing I had them do was take out the fluorescent lighting. And I got one of those little lamps that you swivel on the floor. And everybody would joke that my office was like my cave because I would always (laughs) have the lights off when I was was there unless somebody was in. And so the buzzing of fluorescent lights just really bothers me and gives me migraines. And so just having to sit for that, you can't put a pair of noise cancelers on. I take those everywhere. Um, I carry a backpack um, everywhere I go that usually has a laptop, some noise cancelers. Oftentimes, it's someone just coming up saying, do you need help? I'll give you an example. Um, I very rarely have autism meltdowns. And I was traveling this last week, and I took the train long distance from Spokane to Chicago. And um, Union Station in Chicago is massive. I had no idea where I was going, and I hope this mom is listening. They, there was a mom and her husband, and I believe her autistic son wasn't a hundred percent sure. And they connected up with me when we had one of the stretch breaks. I got off the train and I had my best buddy sweater on, and um, so they came up and said hi and said they were from the Palouse, hmm. and so I was freaking out in the middle of the train station. And this mom came up to me and she said, do you need help? Was able to get where I needed to go. Oh,
0: isn't it nice when you have people that can weigh in and just understand and support you in that way without you having to even ask?
1: Yeah. So I always look for those types of people when I'm out and about in the community who are safe people, who know, what I struggle with. And my circle of friends have been really great at recognizing when I'm struggling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Very rarely do I have to send an SOS because they know.
0: Yeah, no, I well, thank you, John, for coming on this podcast with me and just diving in deeper to a little bit of John Lamas. Um I again, I think I've told you, but uh, for those parents that are listening and just anyone who's listening, our self advocate podcasts are very popular because as parents, we're always trying to figure out. You know, obviously, no parent sets out to say, "Well, I'm going to really work hard today to you know make." Tons of parenting mistakes so that my child has all sorts of baggage that they're going to have to deal with throughout their life. Like no parent wakes up cognizant of, you know, making those types of decisions. And so these self-advocate podcasts, I think, are really beneficial because, again, parents are we don't know what we don't know. And so we don't know. Sometimes our children don't have the capacity to be able to communicate their needs and wants. And so it's really wonderful to be able to have access to a group of self advocates that are willing to come and be vulnerable and share experiences and, you know, tell us your, and explain how life was for you growing up as a person on the autism spectrum. So thank you for coming and being vulnerable and sharing what you did. And as always, I am always so impressed with just your willingness to be open and try and really make a positive difference for for individuals with disabilities, but also supporting parents and our, our drive to try and know how we could um, do things better and what things we could be weighing in on so that we can change systems that need to be improved. And so I thank you for your work and thanks for always being willing to be a guest. And you're just the to close with a quote
1: if I could. Absolutely. So one of my favorite trainers, um, international trainer, is a guy named Norm Kuntz. And him and his wife, Emma, wrote the Credo for Support. And if you've not heard of that, you can Google it. And it's a really good video on how to support people with disabilities. But he says that ability doesn't create opportunity. Opportunity creates ability. And so I love talking about the world of work, right? And it's really important, even for some of those, you know, things that people with autism are like obsessed with or you know, just kind of wanted their interests to really let them delve into those things. Uh, It will help create some opportunities for them in the future.
0: Currently right now, one of the things that we're seeing some high interest is, um, at least for my son, Caleb, and hopefully we'll start seeing some high interest from the kids in the clubhouse that come and hang out with us after school and on some of the weekends, is we have had a 3D printer, John. Oh, I love it. Mind-blowing what you can do with a 3D printer. No, I got to just throw a shout out to Kevin um, Partridge. He um, He is a singer and he performs on Thursday nights down at Black Label Brewing Company. Ding ding I'm giving them a shout out but he for Halloween um won the Halloween costume at Black Label Brewing Company for his Mandal- his Mandalorian um armor um his costume and come to find out he designed and printed it on his 3D printer and it is badass John it is badass. I love it So anyway, I'm just like limitless and limitless potential in terms of this thing. So I'm really excited that, um, you know, my son Caleb is starting to show an interest. And I have um, I'm hoping that we're going to see some other young people start showing us some of their creative talents when we can start getting them building um, and designing their own stuff. So that will be fun.
1: Perfect. I've heard nothing but good things about the clubhouse. I'd love to come down on a day when Sydney's volunteering and check it out.
0: You absolutely should. I also just got yesterday a kudos from a person in the mental health or a licensed mental health counselor. And they obviously couldn't give us any details, but said that they had heard through, um, you know, testimonial that the clubhouse is amazing. So I felt very good about that. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe and just remember we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.